welcome to the Without a Hitch podcast, episode 8. Wait, what did you say? This will be part 2 of two episodes about language. We'll be holding up a magnifying glass to some phrases which, on closer examination, are a bit weird, misleading, or funny. We'll talk about the tendency for confusion with homophones in Kiwi English, where we're a little lazy with our vowel sounds, the glorious and mixed metaphors of workplace language, and idioms that might have confused you as a child and still do. A Kiwi tendency for homophones. Homophone, noun, each of two or more words having the same pronunciation but different meanings, origins or spelling, for example, new and new, Oxford Dictionary. Kiwi English exercises more homophones in general discourse, I believe, than other forms of English. My theory is that this is an extension of the generally relaxed, informal behaviour of New Zealand's occupants. We just don't make the effort to distinguish between words like here, H-A-I-R, and here, H-E-R-E. Sometimes we just trail off on a word without adding the final consonant, or even add a more casual consonant, so pull becomes pull. That's not to say that everyone living in New Zealand is entirely relaxed about their vowel sounds. Our news presenters, for example, were once all champion enunciators, back when they spoke like they'd only recently left the BBC, but now that seems something of a rarity. This linguistic laxness has gotten me into trouble on more than one occasion. A listener hears something different to what I intended to say, or there's a dispute as to whether two words really can be delivered differently. Notes to follow. Bear, B-E-A-R, bear, B-E-R, and bear, B-A-R-E. I once had an extraordinary conversation with a Canadian girl in an Invercargill backpackers. Her name was Jane, and she worked in the forest fire service back in Canada, which was fascinating to me. Do you have bears in the forest? I asked. Huh? Um, well, sometimes in the camp, Jane answered. What? You have bears in your camp? I said. Well, yeah, sometimes, when we want to relax, Jane said. Actual bears, I said. Well, yeah, it's pretty normal, Jane said. We both tilted our heads at each other, puzzled. I'm talking about bears, you know, grar. Here I raised my hands, demonstrating paws with claws and mimed a mauling. Oh, okay, no, I thought you meant bears, as in glug, glug, glug. We didn't end up working bear, B-A-R-E, into a sentence, but if we had, I would have said it the same as bear and bear, and it would have been impassably confusing. Fairy, F-A-I-R-Y, and fairy, F-E-R-R-Y. Our good friends Ruth, originally from the UK, and Tony, originally from South Africa, used to live on the waterfront in Breaker Bay. We stayed with them for a while, and each day we were there, we'd see the ferry departing the North Island on its way to the south. I love the view you have of the ferry coming and going, I'd say. Oh, Richard, it's not ferry, it's fairy, Ruth would say. I could tell they were different sounding words when Ruth pronounced them, but if I was asked to say which was which, I wouldn't have been able to. I'd comment on the ferry, F-E-R-R-Y, whenever I noticed it, just to get a laugh out of Ruth, who would shake her head at the strange man marvelling at magical creatures beyond the bottom of her garden. Here, H-A-I-R, here, H-E-R-E, and here, H-A-R-E. 
When I taught English at Paraparomu College, there was a girl in my year 10 class, Bella, whose family had recently moved to New Zealand from the UK. Bella was shocked at the linguistic laziness of our English. I know Bella, but we just don't really make that much of a distinction with our pronunciation. The words for hair, H-A-I-R, hair, H-E-R-E, and hair, H-A-R-E, don't sound all that different, I said, acting out each of the words for clarity, ending with bunny ear fingers curled behind my head. Of course they do, Bella snapped. Listen, hair, hair, hair. She looked around at the students sitting in her group for confirmation that they were now enlightened, but they just shrugged. Bella's eyes went wide as though just realising she'd emigrated to a country populated by hamsters. I can hear the difference when you say them, I offered, but Bella just looked at me like I should hand over my teaching registration on the spot and go find a profession that didn't require me to speak words. The word hair, H-A-R-E, is particularly difficult, I said, but you just don't hear it that often. Then how can you ever say the word for the animal hair, Bella asked. We just say rabbit. The student next to her offered, smiling. Bella exhaled heavily and rolled her eyes. Where, W-H-E-R-E, where, W-A-R-E, and where, W-E-I-R. Emma, a flatmate of mine in 2003, used to read the news for the national radio station. We got into a discussion about whether there was really any difference between the warehouse, a chain of huge... New Zealand retail outlets, and Warehouse, a university hostel in Wellington. There's no difference, I said. I could even say where, W-H-E-R-E, as in what location, and it would be exactly the same. Oh, Rich, Emma said, of course they're different. Listen, where and where. I could tell by Emma's correct posture and the way she whisked extra breath through the vowel sounds that yes, they could sound different, But I was convinced it was Emma's newsreader training that gave her these special powers, and once again I doubted I could pick out which was which if I wasn't handed the context on a plate. Okay, I said, let me try. Where, where, where? I paused. There. Could you tell the difference? Emma nearly slipped off her seat, laughing. I must have come across like a confused outlander with a speech impediment trying to sound like a duke. Touching base. When I lived in Newtown with Kath, Alex and Steph, we had a running joke about the phrase touching base. It started with Alex telling us one day that she really couldn't handle people saying it. From that day on, we were always trying to spring it on each other. We'd stroll up a little closer than typical conversation distance as if to disclose a secret, stand up very straight whip back one side of our jacket or shirt to make room to slip a hand into a pocket, lock eyes, then say softly, we need to touch base. The phrase was funny for us because we were so far removed from it. It has roots in baseball, a sport we don't really play in New Zealand, plus it's something we imagined exclusive to the professional realm, a place we, dead poor university students, didn't belong. It felt like business language nonsense, and the joke took a long time to get old. Since then, I've encountered even more classic examples of business language than touching base. These are phrases used as catchy shorthand to simplify, steer, or categorise work conversations, but which, if you think a bit more about the metaphors, are kind of weird and definitely funny. 
Now, a disclaimer. I'm not making a comment on any particular workplace or criticizing anyone who has used these phrases. I've caught myself using these. I'm just asking, what are we even saying? First cab off the rank. That'll be first cab off the rank, is what people say when a priority call has been made and that this is the next thing we should take on, often from a long list of other seemingly important things. When I hear this, I hope that this first cab is actually the cab at the front of the queue of cabs waiting there, engine idling, drivers getting hot and impatient, but sometimes it's a cab from the middle of the line and all the cabs in front of it have to shuffle forward a bit and all the cabs from behind have to shuffle back a bit and it's a real faff for this cab to manoeuvre out of its parallel park and all the shuffling takes the shine off the esteem of being the first cab. The rest of the drivers have to sit there with their cabs idling because we might need them to drive off instantly at any given moment. And in our haste to launch that first cab into motion, sometimes we forget to establish where the driver is actually going and who is going to pay the fare. Let's take this offline. Nowadays, let's take this offline is something you might hear on an online call, which makes take this offline sound about right because you are switching from online to an in-person offline later. But I've also heard it used when everyone is physically in the room. In this sense, Offline implies some amorphous elsewhere, whether we're present physically or digitally. Let's take this offline is typically used by one person in the meeting to suggest another person stops talking about a particular point, perhaps because it's something that only those two people in the group need to talk about, not everyone, or something that requires more depth than the meeting time will allow. Beneath the surface, it can actually mean, listen, Janet. This argument isn't over, but we're not going to do this in front of all these people. We'll duke it out later. North Star. This will be our North Star, is what people say to hold something up as the ultimate goal, one of such clarity that you should always be able to locate it and see it, that will show us the way no matter how muddled we might get in the dark. We are encouraged to be as the genius sailors of old, traversing incredible distances using only the stars, or in this case, just the one readily available star. It's a well-meaning phrase which can promote positive feelings about a project, no doubt. Who hasn't wanted to just throw open the door and follow the stars at some point? But people can also get fatigued by it, especially if you don't seem like you're getting closer to the ultimate goal, only forever seeing it in the extreme distance. There are... Further issues. The North Star doesn't sit exactly at the North Celestial Pole. It's a bit off to one side, so it's not quite north. And with star-based navigation, how do you draw a line exactly perpendicular to the point in the horizon it stands for? I mean, without precision instruments. Because we don't have those. Because we're not really sailors. We just like the idea of stars showing us the way. Critically, surely this is only useful at night? You can't even see stars during the day. And an even more devastating hit... The North Star isn't even visible in the sky down here in the Southern Hemisphere. Perhaps we should be aiming for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow instead. A something play. Work endeavours can feel like a game of lacrosse, bursting with strategic sideline talks, sprints across the field and shots on goal. We come off for half-time and the coach thumbs to the exact place in their playbook for this particular scenario, turns to the captain Chadwick Brazenweather and declares, what we need is a content play. The play ensues and is unsuccessful. So when we come back off the field for another timeout, the assistant coach steps up, 
grabbing the playbook off the coach, turns to the vice-captain Sky Dupree and declares, what we need is a digital play. I just close my eyes and list the other plays that come to mind. A school play, a role play, a nativity play. Laser focused. In the modern workplace, we are attracted to the idea of having the accuracy and focus of a laser. True focus is hard to find. We need to be laser focused. Computers and the internet were meant to augment our efficiency, make us more connected. Some assumed, and still assume, it might solve the mess of solving dense people problems. But all I see are people harried by lists. Lists of Slack messages, lists of emails, lists of document notifications, lists of calendar invites. Have you checked all your lists in the last 10 minutes? The computer screams at us. To make headway, you're forced to be a bolshy eschewer of lists. No, I will not look at that list today. I will not. There sometimes seems little hope for focus, let alone the kind afforded by a bona fide laser. No dice. Once a month. That's about how often the phrase, no dice, gets written down in Slack at my current workplace. I have an alert for the word dice set up because my work name is Dice. People who I work with will say, of course you're Dice, that's your name. People I know outside work will wonder, who is Dice? You're Richard. It started with too many Richards at work. There were three Richards at Paraparomo College and three Richards at Springload. Most of the Richard variants were taken at Springload. There was already a Richard and a Richie. So before I arrived, they looked at my surname, Allardyce, and decided I would be called The Dice. I was actually honoured. I've had a lot of nicknames inflicted upon me in the past, and this was the first one that was... nice. This was soon shortened just to Dice, which was a relief. Having the definite article in front of your name is just too much pressure. I hope you're dealing with it okay, The Rock. By some alignment of the stars, all three Richards left Paraparaumu College at about the same time, off to pursue different things. The running joke was... All the dicks are leaving. You lost me there. There was this cartoon I used to watch in the early 90s called Bobby's World. The intro, featuring the most inane and hypnotic music imaginable, might jog your memory. Search it and have a listen. After the music ended, actor Howie Mandel, who went on to host Deal or No Deal, would talk to Bobby about the upcoming show. Watching it now, you get a sense of how excruciating it must be to act against a green screen talking to the air. How we made a valiant effort of it, but yeah. Much of the show was about wordplay. Bobby, the youngest in the family, would hear a phrase meant to be figurative but take it literally, or he'd fixate on an alternative meaning of a phrase with more than one interpretation. The show would then spiral around a fantasy sequence powered by Bobby's imagination. In one episode, Bobby's dad talks about a foul ball, referring to a baseball game, but Bobby imagines a formal ballroom decorated with garlic and fish with everyone dancing about in suits and gowns. As a kid, I would often get distracted by rogue idioms, metaphors and double meanings. I could relate to Bobby's experience of the world. I've come to learn what most of these confusing phrases really mean, but there are some, to follow, that I'll never properly get my head around. Butter wouldn't melt. 
This is supposedly related to insincerity and the relative body temperature of a person who can no longer melt butter in their mouth because they are just so calm and collected. But why are they melting butter in their mouth? Are they trying to bake without a heat source? Melting the butter is the least of their concerns. Chalk and cheese. These are apparently opposites of each other. At least with oil and water, the chemistry is a little more straightforward. I've heard that one origin of this phrase is that an English shopkeeper from forever ago would sell chalk, cheap, under the pretense of cheese. Profitable. Surely his customer base did not allow this to go on for long. Have your cake and eat it too. Now, are we saying you can have your cake and eat it too, or you can't? I mean, if I ate the cake, wouldn't that mean I'd also already had it, so I'd met all the conditions? The simpler cousin, you can't have it both ways, has always made more sense to me. I am easily confused by cake. I will always eat it all, mashing it into my face with my palm, and have it too. Doesn't mince words. I just can't escape the meaty connotations of mince, and seldom hear anyone using the non-meat meaning of the word. I just picture an old-school meat grinder. At a stretch, that grinder could be processing dictionaries and spitting out pulp, but by that point, I'm thoroughly mincing the metaphors. The jury's out on this one. Why? Where did they go? Are they out reneging on their decision-making duties or out making the decision? If there's an important decision at hand, surely it would help for them to stick around and make it. Whenever I hear this, I think, get that jury to come back. They're not done yet. Live each day as if it's your last. Now, this one I get, but honestly, it sounds way too stressful. It's hard enough already to get through a normal day without the constant threat of impending mortality. How am I to enjoy anything with the pressure of requiring every moment to be at its absolute peak? The gloves are off. This is supposed to indicate an escalation in seriousness, but you pause the fight to unlace your gloves? While you pause to get a hold on the lace, surely that's a prime opportunity for the other fighter to clock you one. And you're both going to end up with very sore hands, for no reason, tripping over those nice gloves on the ground. Don't judge a book by its cover. Here the metaphor made sense, but the literal interpretation always threw me. I mean, in a bookstore, you almost exclusively judge books by their cover. It's practically inescapable. Go have a look at some cover reprints of books you know and love. I guarantee you'll find covers that give an entirely different impression of the book, which might have compelled you to give it a miss. Okay, everyone, that's all we have for the Without a Hitch podcast, episode eight. Thanks so much for listening. See you again next time. Okay, bye.